renowned prayers of the Bible, and this is the last session that we'll have in this theme that's put together. And I have two of them. If you'll see in your bulletin, I have two prayers, and so we're going to try to attempt to move through them because both of them are pretty meaty. Both of them have a ton there that we could spend a long time on. And so we'll just pull out some of the, the big portions. We'll probably spend a little bit more time on the prayer in Gethsemane, and then the uh, prayer in Ephesians will probably just draw a few points, and you don't have to go back and study it yourself to, to get some more out of it because there's just so much there, and we, we just don't have time to cover it all. But uh, I was intimidated uh, about Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. And the reason is, is because in Gethsemane is one of the, the most clear times that we see Jesus, the God-man. We see his humanity meet up with his deity. Fully God and fully man. And we see it in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's not ever an easy thing to talk about. And yet, uh, it's going to be displayed before us. And and boy, the the more I dug into it, the more I I, I saw it, the more I worshipped that God in his infinite wisdom allowed Jesus was fully God, and at no time was he not fully God, but he allowed Jesus to be fully man as well. And so, just like you and me, he experienced this world. And so, Garden of Gethsemane is where we're going to be. So if you want to turn your, your book, your book, your Bible, is to Matthew 26, and we're going to be Bible hopping a little bit today, and so be ready to turn with me, because I think that's a good exercise. So how did we get here? The Garden of Gethsemane. I learned some things about the Garden of Gethsemane. Relearned and learned. But one of the things I learned was that um, the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had just had the upper room, uh, met with his disciples in the upper room, the Passover. He had foretold of his betrayal. And they go out on a walk. And in the middle of the night, on Thursday night, They're walking with the disciples, and he's teaching them. He brings them through the vineyard, and he starts teaching them in John 15. He teaches them about abiding in him. And the whole time in Jesus' ministry, he keeps saying, the hour has not yet come. Because the fullness of time for him to take the, the wrath of God upon himself has not been time yet. And now we're leading up, and in the Garden of Gethsemane, we're going to see that now the hour has come. And so the question, how did we get here? Everything since the beginning of time has led up to this point. History has occurred in the way it has occurred by God's design to lead up now to this point, the beginning of the cross. And we start in Gethsemane because we see something so incredible. It's the point where Jesus struggles. And we're going to talk about that. He struggles as a man with this concept that he knows that in a few short hours he is going to become the sin bearer. And so let's read together what is said in the prayer. So verse 36. Then Jesus came to them to a, with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. Who are the two sons of Zebedee? And 
John and James, yep. So he, had, he brought Peter, James, and John with them. So he said to the rest of his disciples, you sit here, I need, I need, you sit here and you pray. And then he took Peter, James, and John, and he brought them with him. Where else have we seen Peter, James, and John? The Mount of Transfiguration. So I'm thinking Peter, James, and John may have an understanding that something big is about to happen. But he brings them with them. He is the ones, these are the three that he trusts the most. And he says this to them. And listen to how personal this is. He says to them, I'm sorry, verse 37, and began, he took them with him and he began to be grieved and distressed. And then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved. To the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. So Jesus admits to his closest friends, he says, Guys, I am struggling. My heart is heavy. I am hurting. I am deeply grieved. And he, he says, To the point of death. Now, this was not just a, a, a phrase that he was saying to the point of death. And we read in Luke that he was starting to sweat drops of blood. And the medical explanation for this is when people are in areas of of extreme stress, the capillaries can actually begin to weep blood. Soldiers that have been ready to go out before battle have been documented as as sweating blood. It is a, a sign of extreme stress, and it's a sign that the body is reacting in such a negative way from the anxiety and stress that's being placed on it that it's beginning to shut down. And so Jesus, when he turns to his best friends and he says, Guys, I am struggling. I am so grieved. He said, I am I am dying here. That's what he means. That the weight of what he was facing was so deep and so real and so personal and he was feeling it in such an enormous way, the weight of it on his shoulders, that, that he turned to them and said, I'm, I'm grieving to, to the point of death. Keep watch with me. Verse 39. And when he went a little beyond them, he fell on his face and he prayed saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. This is so interesting. Verse 39 is explained away and and excuses are made. And it's weird because a lot of times we won't let Jesus be human. We won't let Jesus be the man that he was. And what is Jesus saying here to the Father? You know what he's saying? He is saying, I am struggling with this, Father. I don't want to do this. If there's any other way, if you can do it a different way, please, please have that happen. And Jesus is genuinely saying to this, the Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way that I can get out of this, please let it pass from me. And he's face down on the ground calling out to the Father in this really vulnerable place that we see Jesus. Maybe the most vulnerable we see him in all of Scripture. 
And yet at the end of this cry where he says, if there's any other way, please, what does he say? Yet not as I will, but as you will. So he makes the honest request, God, I I don't want to do this. If there's any other way, please, please make it happen. And yet, God, you know not not what I want, but, but you want, Father. And he gets up, verse 40. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, why, why would he say so that you may not enter into temptation? Well, temptation was on the Lord's mind. Because the Lord was being tempted in the garden. The Lord was working through some serious things in the garden, wasn't he? And the the man, Jesus the man, was struggling through these temptations to call it, to go a different way. And yet he said, not what I will, but what you will. But he understood, he understood that temptation was real and it was at hand. And so he encourages disciples to not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. When he went away a second time, so he left him again, verse 42, and he says, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. He comes and he prays, and he prays a little differently, doesn't he? He says, my father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. What's so cool is we're going to see the progression of Jesus as he decides that, yes, I am going to become the sin bearer. And so at first he's saying, God, I I can't handle this. I don't want to do this. Is there any other way? And now he's coming and he's accepting He's accepting through his prayer with the Father. He understands and he accepts. He says, Father, if this cannot pass away, unless I drink it, your will be done. The request is is softened a little, isn't it? He is beginning to see that there is no other way. In uh, Isaiah 53, verse 10, that was actually read this morning. Um, Let me turn there real quick. I think it's worth touching on. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. And we see even the the fulfillment of that prophecy of the grief that the Lord Jesus was, was bearing. But Jesus knew the plan. The Scriptures had foretold what was to come, and Jesus knew that he would be the sin bearer that he would suffer. And so you see him accepting this. And in verse 42, we see him accepted again. He says, this cannot pass away unless I drink it. Your will be done. Verse 43, again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Now the disciples, they hadn't slept. They pulled an all-nighter here. They had been awake from early Thursday, waking up Thursday morning, all through the night, nice long walk and through the vineyard, and now into the garden, a place where they'd go to rest. 
on a regular basis. And they are there struggling, wanting to stay awake, wanting to continue to pray and, and, and lift up. They, they could sense that something big was happening. And yet their poor, poor guys, their bodies were shutting down on them, weren't they? They're, they were falling asleep. And so here is Jesus, and, and really a symbol of how alone he was in the garden. And we're going to see that, that he's about to experience in a few hours on the cross uh, a separation and an aloneness that was pointed out in the Lord's Supper this morning that no one else has ever experienced. Verse 44, And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. And now we see in verse 45 that he has accepted that there's no other way. He has accepted that this is the will of the Father that the hour come, the hour is here, that he will be crushed for our iniquities. And he says to his disciples, Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. What if Jesus never goes through with it? What if Jesus, through the struggle and temptation that he endured in the garden says that we're not worth it. History's a little different, isn't it? And yet we see the obedience of Jesus when he said, when he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. And he meant it. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. Really extraordinary stuff. And this was... I'm thankful for my professor Dave Glock and Life of Christ and, and the, some of these things that he drew my attention to. So Hebrews 5, verse 7. In Hebrews 5, the author of Hebrews is going to go ahead and he's going to talk about Gethsemane. Verse 7, he says, In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, meaning although he was God, he learned obedience from the things which he had suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. That's quite a statement, isn't it? to say that Jesus learned obedience. And yet we see in the garden, Jesus learns obedience. He chooses to obey. He submits His will to the Father's. And what's the result? Verse 9, And having been made perfect, He became to all those who obey Him the source of eternal salvation. Skip down to Hebrews 4, verse 15. Hebrews 4, verse 15. This is why the author of Hebrews can make this bold statement as well. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things 
as we are, yet without sin. And isn't that the difference? Yet without sin. See, the picture of Gethsemane is the God-man and the man being incredibly pushed and leaned on and even tempted. And the beauty of it is to watch this man, Jesus, yield his will to the Father's. So let me ask you, have you ever faced anything like the Garden of Gethsemane? I've had, I have some serious anxiety in my life. There's, I mean, I, I uh, can get real stressed out, and uh, there's a lot of weight, weighty things that I have to deal with. But I can tell you that I have never experienced anything like the Garden of Gethsemane. I've experienced my feeling, um, or the knowledge that my wife was close to death and very possibly going to die, and, and experienced the anxiety and the fear that, that comes with that. So I've experienced that, but I want to tell you that there is nothing close that I've ever experienced that is close to the anxiety and the weight that Jesus faced in the Garden of Gethsemane. I've never been asked to be made sin. You see, and that was what was so weighty on the heart of a perfect God-man, Jesus. Because He knew what was going to be asked of Him. He knew that the Father would turn His back and that He would bear our sin. That was no small thing. You see, the man who had never experienced uh, what it was like to feel guilt and shame would be made sin for us. So he was made an adulterer and a murderer and, and, and a covetous jerk and, and, and he was made a slanderer and he was made and he had to deal with that shame and that guilt. And that was just my sin. And the anxiety of Gethsemane is Jesus knowing full well that what He was about to face on that cross was the weight of bearing the sin for the world. And it pleased the Father to crush Him. Please is the, the word there. It's not that it made the Father really happy. This is great. But the Father, knowing what it would take to redeem His children, willingly sacrificed His Son. And so there's Jesus in the garden, crying out with His face to the ground to the Father. And first He says, If it's possible, let this cup pass from Me. Not My will, but Yours. My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, Your will be done. And we see as Jesus in his prayer, begins to let his decision-making be changed to the will of the Father. That would have been helpful. What was the result of the prayer? Here's some three results. that God the Father says there is no other way. 
Because we know the rest of the story. In fact, he gets up and he goes out and he is he's seized. Turn real quick, if you will. This is, this is great. John 18. Remember good old Peter, the fisherman pretending to be a soldier, takes out a sword and cuts off the guy's ear. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? He makes a statement to Peter, listen, I have chosen to obey. And we see the Garden of Gethsemane that he makes the decision, yes, I will be obedient to the will of the Father regardless of the consequences. And we see strength and determination and no one getting in his way from that point on. So the Garden of Gethsemane becomes an enormous piece of history, doesn't it? Where Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. Without him going through this, without him saying, yes, I will obey, the cross doesn't happen. Without him making the decision to be obedient, even to the point of death, even death on a cross, our salvation doesn't happen. It's exciting to watch as Jesus laid before the Father and allowed his heart to be changed. And we realize that the Father said, there's no other way, Jesus. Jesus, in his moments of deepest sorrow, comes to the Father. Where do you go when you're hurting the most? Where do you go when life is crushing you? When you feel like Jesus felt, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Where do you go? Well, Jesus taught us there's only one place to go. There is only one place to go when it's at the feet of the Father. Jesus obeys and accepts the will of the Father. This is the result of the prayer. Now, this was not the result of the initial prayer that he prayed, was it? This was not the answer that he was looking for in that first prayer in verse 39. If it's possible, if there's any other way, please... And yet as we see him continue to pray and continue to have this attitude, but not my will, we see that Jesus allows himself to be obedient. So what does this teach us? What does this teach us about our prayer life? This being maybe the most intense prayer that has ever happened. What does this teach us about what our prayer lives need to be? Well, first, we need to come to the Father. We need to stop going to our spouses and our friends and other people first. And we need to drop at the feet of the Father and say, face down in desperation, I am troubled. I can't do this. I can't take this. Is there any other way? Hebrews 5, I loved it when it said, From these things which he suffered. He learned obedience from these things which he suffered. I want to let you know that suffering in our lives, although it's not fun, is not by accident. But suffering will be a waste if we do not learn obedience from the things that we suffer. And you cannot learn from those sufferings apart from a connection with the Father. Do you know what I'm saying by that statement? 
Maybe it sounds a little funny, but you cannot learn from the experience of suffering unless you tie yourself to the Father during those times. And Jesus did just that, and I'm so thankful that He did. We need to go to the Father in our deepest times of sorrows. We have the opportunity to obey even when the answer is not what we want. We can align through the Spirit's power our will with the Father. Listen, if Jesus was able to align His will with the Father on accepting the weight of the cross, is there anything that we've experienced that we can't align our will to the Father's with? The answer is no. The answer is no because because Jesus did it. Jesus showed us how. And in the greatest weight that's ever been put on someone, He came out with flying colors. And you know what? That same power that raised Him from the dead lives within us. Waiting to unleash itself in us so that in our moments of suffering, in our moments of anxiety, in our moments of crying out, I can't do this, when we're praying and we're not seeing the answer that we want, when God is answering the prayer but it's not in the way that we want it answered, it's then that we can say, but not my will, God, but your will. I love the trust that Jesus places in the Father. And I want that same faith. I want that same trust. And I know that that's the only way to endure suffering. That's the only way that I'll learn from suffering. That's the only way that I'll be more like Jesus inside of life and the things that life throws at us is when I'm able to lay myself down in front of the Father and say, not my will, but your will be done. All right, let's change gears. So turn your Bible, if you could, to Ephesians 5. Sorry, Ephesians 3. I was able to go with Dr. Frank to lunch on Wednesday, and I had been focusing so much on Wednesday, I had been focusing so much on uh, Gethsemane that I hadn't, I hadn't focused a ton on Ephesians, and I... I knew some of the content. I knew that we, in, in the prayer, that he was going to talk about the, the length and breadth and height and depth of the love of Christ. And I knew that we'd, we'd touch on that. But I hadn't really invested in it. And, and so Dr. Frank says, what's prayer in, in Ephesians? And, uh, and he says, is it Ephesians 3? And he starts quoting that one. Or is it Ephesians 5? And he starts quoting that one at Village Inn. And I think, yeah, the first one sounded right, Dr. Frank. Thank you. Yeah, It's great when you know more about it, the prayer or the, the message that I do starting from Wednesday. But I had a good time talking through some of these things with him. But let's pick up and read here. This is a, a, a letter that is written from Paul in prison. So this, Ephesians is one of his prison epistles. He is in jail. So everything he says, we need to know the context. This guy is sitting in a cold cell. Um, and that, for whatever reason, that, that changes a little bit our perspective, especially when he starts conveying this joy that he has in the Lord. Um, so that, that's where he's at when he's writing this, so keep that in mind. Where did we go? We missed the, the first slide, which is how we get, how we get here. But that is, is some of what, how we get here, that, that Paul is in prison, 
He's writing to encourage the Ephesians. He's talking throughout Ephesians about the mysteries revealed. And the mysteries are not, he talks about mysteries, and they're not mysteries like, oh, these are super hard to understand. These are just things that have not yet been revealed, and now they're being revealed. And one of the main things he talks about in Ephesians is the fact that Jews and Greeks alike are made one in Christ. And, and how enormous that is. And he starts to get himself revved up here as he talks about how big a deal it is that we know this Jesus guy. How big a deal it is in our lives that we have a relationship with Christ. And so that's where we start. So I'll read through this and then we'll go back and we'll talk about it. So Ephesians 3.14 if you want to read with me. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul is excited about Jesus. Paul is excited about the relationship that he gets to have with the Savior. And in this prayer that he starts to pray, and it's funny because it was for the Ephesian church and yet it's been passed down through history and now it's for us today. Paul is excited about the potential of your life and my life and the joy that can be found in your life and in my life because of this connection with the Savior. Because of who Jesus is, Paul gets excited when he starts talking about it. Because of what Jesus can do in your life, Paul prays and he says, For this reason I bow my knee before the Father. And he starts in verse 15, he says, From whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. The Father is the one who has given your family exactly who they are. He knows you. He understands you. He loves you. He's directed history to be exactly how he wanted it to be. Verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. Who's the the richest man on earth? Does anyone know? Sultan of Bernard. I'm going to Google that because I don't know who that is. The richest guy I know is Scrooge McDuff from DuckTales. Anyone with me? Do you remember DuckTales when... He gets stressed out from the three little ducklings. And so what would he do? What would he do to relax himself? He'd go swimming. And what would he swim in? Gold. And he had the swimming pool filled with treasure. He'd even do the, he'd even like spit out water, but it was coins. It was very unique. And that's what I think of for whatever reason when I think of, of riches is Scrooge McDuff. And Paul is saying that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. What kind of riches are there in the glory of God? Do we understand that that concept? 
What kind of riches are there in the glory of God? How big is God? Infinite. Very big. That's, that's kind of where I am at. Thank you, Aaron. He's very big. He is immeasurably wealthy. His glory is too much for us to understand. His glory makes everything else pale. And Paul here says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. You see the gravity of what Paul is praying here? He is wanting your inner man to explode with the glory of God. He is wanting the Spirit of God in the believers of these Ephesians that he's writing to and praying for to understand in a way like they never have who it is they're dealing with, who it is they belong to, the one that gave them their name a few verses earlier. He wants them to understand the glory of this God. And not only understand that in a, a yeah, I can see that, I can, I can picture that, I get it, but he wants it to explode in their inner man. Who they are. Their very being. He wants to be filled with the riches of the glory of God the Father. That's quite a prayer. Is God big enough to fill us up? Is God big enough to, to be everything we need in all circumstances? Is He big enough when we truly understand who He is to allow us to have real joy at all times? See, I think we have just scratched the surface of what God wants to do in our hearts. There are some sweet times in, in life when, when you are, it's just without a doubt you're in the presence of God and you understand in those moments there is nothing that I'd rather do. There is nothing that I need besides this God. There is nothing better than you, God. And those, are, those moments are sweet and yet Paul is saying that he wants that unleashed in you, in your inner man, so a knowledge of who God is that radically changes who we are. You see, if God is unleashed in our life in this way, boy, we would not behave in the same way we do now, would we? We'd look very different. There wouldn't be much room for, for discouragement, would there? There wouldn't be much room for, for some of our petty sins. Verse 17, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. We just talked about how big God is, didn't we? And Paul's prayer for the Ephesians and prayer for us now is that we understand who this is that dwells in us. That we understand Christ for who He is. 
the firstborn over all creation. The one with magnificent power. The one that holds the future. And that we, in entering into this relationship with Him, and in entering into this knowledge of, of the love that surpasses our ability to understand, this, this love that the, He says He wants us to comprehend the, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know that love that surpasses knowledge, and to be filled up with all the fullness of God. He longs for us to have the Spirit of God unleash in our lives the fulfillment and joy and power of knowing God. I am embarrassed with the measly, piddly ways that I've been saying that I'm, I'm trying to know God. Where the, the ten minutes of Scripture reading that I give the God of the universe so that I can get to more important things like Sports Center. I am embarrassed about my view of who God is. Because that kind of behavior in my life proves that I have a real warped perspective of who God is, don't I? I don't understand who I'm dealing with. I don't understand the potential and the joy of what it would be to be filled to the fullness of God. Because if I could get a picture of that, a reality. And if, if my mind through the Spirit's power could, could believe that and I could see heart difference and heart change through it, and I would understand that there was nothing else more valuable than to know Christ, then my life would look very different. My struggle would not be to balance a whole bunch of things so that I could fit in some time to, to read God's Word, but, but my life would be out of balance with how much I'm invested into the God of the universe. And the struggle would be, how am I going to figure out a way to do all that other stuff? That seems so far to me from where I am and where I live. That concept of being so infatuated with God, so enamored with how big He is and the fact that He lives within us. That seems so far from the reality of where I am that, it, that it, um, it seems impossible. It seems out there. And yet Paul is praying in a way that he doesn't think it's impossible. In fact, in verse 20, he says, this is why this is possible, friends. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. See, I hear that verse sometimes and I think, you know what that means? Yeah, God can raise money for that charity. He's got all the money. He can do that. And that's how I start to think about what that verse means. Oh, God can do a lot of really good stuff because He can even blow your mind with how, how great things He can do. That he can, he can work out plans that you have and all of a sudden it works out great. And that's how I've started to think about that verse when I hear it. That, that I should pray because God, God can accomplish great things. And that is true. Please don't let me discount that. That is absolutely true that God can do some really great things and He can accomplish some great things. But the context of Paul saying that is talking about the inner man. And he is talking about the God of the universe being unleashed inside of us. 
And that is the context of him saying, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. Paul is saying, You don't even know what life can be like when God the Father is unleashed in your life. You don't even know what the Spirit who lives within you can accomplish in your life. The joy that you can experience. The goodness that you can show as the fruit of the Spirit starts to just pour out of you. And I want to tell you, friends, that my lack of ability to understand who God is and the riches of His glory has severely hampered my willingness to allow Jesus to unleash Himself in my heart and my life. And so I get what I ask for, which is this defeated life, right? Why, why can't I make it work? Why, why am I always facing this? Why is everything so frustrating? Why does it not make sense? It's because I've, I've gotten what I've asked for. My actions have proven that I don't care about what Paul is saying can happen in my life. In no place in here is he saying that, that it's, a, it's, it's a hidden gem and, and he really doesn't want to give it to you. You know, you have to kick down the door and you have to steal it from him before he'll give it to you. No, he is, he is expressing in his prayer how Jesus longs for this to be characteristic of our lives. This is what he wants. This is what Christ wants for every believer. This is what he wants for you and for me. I don't look like this. And uh, I guess that, that's, that's where I'm, I'm, I'm at right now. I don't, not even that I have some great plan to move forward. Even I, But I, right now, honestly, where I'm at is I just, I just don't look like this. This isn't me. There's certainly a big part of me that wants that. There's certainly a, an enormous part of me that says, I won't have real joy until I have that. And I know that. And those moments of sweetness where, where um, the Spirit allows me to get outside of myself and I experience who God is and I say, There's no, He's all I need. Those moments and the memory of those moments continue to make me think that I'm not there, but I, I want that. The fullness of God is available to be unleashed in our lives. What's the limiting factor? See the guys going like this. That's right. Me. See, I get so distracted sometimes that I forget that it's just sitting there waiting for me as an enormous gift. And then I settle. And even that gets in the way. Paul's prayer to the Ephesians has not happened in my life yet in full, full measure. And yet it is a prayer that continues to be applicable to us, doesn't it? That we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all fullness of God. Brothers and sisters, this is a miracle. It would take a miracle 
And yet, according to verse 20, he is able, fully able, to accomplish that miracle. So I'm going to pray, and I ask that you bow your head and you pray with us. And if if the hungering that you experience is the same as mine for for what Paul is saying is possible through the Spirit of God, I just pray that you would quietly, uh, um, silently pray along with me. Because I want an awakening in my heart so that I can experience who God is. And I don't want to be satisfied anymore with whatever is going on that I'm calling. Let's pray. Father, the idea that you would give me another chance after I messed up uh, so royally with the the amazing grace that I've been handed is, is it's astounding, so thank you. And yet, Father, here I can come before you and I can, I can, I can stop and I can acknowledge that I've really messed up, that I, I have not aligned uh, my actions with what I say I believe. I've been real selfish. Father, even now as I start thinking about that, what it would be like if, if the fullness of God was experienced in my life, that just seems so far away. It seems like something that, that can never be attained, something that could never happen. And the truth is, on my own strength, absolutely, I have nothing to do with being able to, to experience the fullness of God. And yet your spirit can. The power comes from your spirit that lives within me. And so God, here before you with, with my brothers and sisters, I, I want to pray that you would unleash your spirit in my life, that you would take care of all of the, the, the selfishness and the pride and the ugliness of my sin that, that's getting in the way of me experiencing who you are. God, what a great prayer. I'm so thankful that it's in here in your word. The prayer that we understand you in fullness, that we be changed by you. God, there is the ability to experience you even this side of heaven, and I want that. Everything else really seems unattractive at this point, and I pray, God, that you would help me uh, to, like the Lord Jesus, put down my will and say, not my will, but your will be done. Lord, your will be done in my life, please, and that is the will to have my life be a beautiful picture of your grace. God, we long for that and pray for your help. In your name, Jesus. Amen.